Well, good morning. We started a series called Making Room, and uh, each week in June, we're looking at the critical commitments of what it takes or what, it, what allows us and opens us to God's grace and power and joy to help us live this flourishing or overflowing life with God. And last week, we discussed the idea of making room for Christ, for his presence in our life, that it takes intention and attention. Jesus said that people who desire to live a life in God's kingdom, where a place where he reigns and he rules, need to seek first that kingdom, as well as his righteousness, and then all the other pieces will be added as well. At the end of his life, he said to his disciples, you, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he continued as Kira read. Jesus said it kind of like this. I don't want you to just know the way that I've loved you. I want you to know, or I want you to love each other like I have loved you. It would have been a lot easier if Jesus would have said, This is my suggestion. Love each other as I have loved you. Or, this is my command. Love each other in whatever way feels good. Because most of us do that. We kind of make the definition of love in our mind, and then we say, oh, that's love. But he raises the bar and he says, I want you to love each other like I have loved you. And what is that? To lay down your life, to sacrifice for others. And then he says, I call you friends. Not just people who are like servants who listen and follow what I say, but people who share intimate and honest information. And I've shared everything personal that the Father has shared with me, I'm sharing with you. And so he, in turn, shares his character and his closeness with God as Father to these people that he calls his friends. And then finally, Jesus says, you are my mission friends. Now, he doesn't actually say mission friends, but, you know, he does say, I chose you and I appointed you to go bear spiritual fruit. That sounds like friends on a mission rather than just friends to hang out with. I mean, there is something beautiful of being about being able to hang out with friends, especially friends where you can raid their fridge and you can sit on their couch and you can look at each other and you don't have to say anything and it's not awkward. Like, there is something beautiful about those kind of friends. But there is also something beautiful about sitting with a group of people who are like-minded or, as I tell my kids, who love what you love and then doing something together. And that's what Jesus is saying. They are friends that are sent on a mission. And so I would say that's who Christ's people are. They're people who love like Jesus loves. They're people who share with others what they've learned from God. And they're people who go to others, like on a mission, go bear fruit. They reach out in normal and natural ways and talk about what God is doing in their life. And And if you've experienced one of these people before, you know there is something amazing about it. 
I can think of three people in my life who were Christ people to me before I knew Christ that were significant in leading me to Christ. I read a story, though, from another pastor that paints a vivid picture about what Christ people look like. He said that several years ago, he and his wife went with their church on a mission trip to China, and it was just a short-term trip, and they had to leave one day early. So the group decided to come back to this main area of China. They were going to go to the Great Wall of China before they did some sightseeing, and then these, uh, this pastor and his wife were going to go back early. So they were saying goodbye to their team. They were leaving. They were getting in this cab. And as they were loading their luggage in the back of the trunk and getting in the car, the missionary friend that was stationed there, like all of a sudden starts shouting, Chris, 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 just wait. You got to come and see this. You can't leave yet. I got it. I forgot to show you this. And like, I mean, excited, but sort of manic panic. And Chris is like, no, no, no. Like as a, as a natural pastor would, no, no, I'm sorry. We've got to go. We're going to be late for our flight. And he's like, no, no, really, you've got to see this. You and your wife, you've got to come. Grab your luggage. It'll be worth it. It'll make sense after you've seen it. Then you can catch your flight. And he's like, we're going to be late. Are you sure this is like, ah. And so then, as just good pastors learn to do, lets out this sigh that doesn't say I judge you, but does say I'm annoyed. (sighs) They get their luggage. They walk over. And as soon as they're far enough away from the cab, the missionary's like, that's not a real cab. It's one of those look-alike cabs where the driver drives you out of the city, beats you to a bloody pulp, steals all your stuff, and leaves you for dead. And I had to get you away from them without them knowing I was on to them. Now, this, this pastor says, oh, I think you might have saved our lives. And it's a dramatic example of, maybe too dramatic, but it is a dramatic example of how that missionary buddy was a Christ person to them, a true friend, someone who was there for them and had their back even when they didn't know they were in danger. This is what Christ is talking about when he says, these are my people, you are my friends, and they're people that we need to make room for. But I imagine many of you, as you think about, oh, he's going to talk about making room for relationships with other people, even Christian people, like some of you have something go off in the back of your mind that makes it feel just as threatening as getting in a death cab. And I just wonder why that is. And to me, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. In Genesis, when God creates everything and he creates it really beautiful and it's all good and he looks over it, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. The first time that it's not good is not sin, it's not Satan, it's actually that the man or the human was alone. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And, and yes, that is about marriage, but it's not just about marriage. It's even more than that about community, about having others in your life. It's the fact that God in his image is male and female. It's the fact that God in his image is father, son, and spirit. That God in himself has perfect community. The rest of us, the only way we can perfectly reflect God is to be in relationship with others. The only way we can really Know God to our fullest is to be in relationship with others. The rest of us need people as life-giving, soul-enriching, 
parts of our experience that God intended us to experience. And so if God designed us this way, and if we would agree that yes, we should make room for others, especially Christ people in our life, then, then why do so many of us resist making room for those kind of relationships? Like honest, authentic, Christ-centered relationships. So I'm like, wow, gosh, do we like ask everybody to answer that? Like, why don't you make more room for relationships? I thought about it, and I'm like, ah, oh, that might be a little personal. Um, but as I, as I really prayed about it, I'm like, well, if I started at the beginning, it would be fear and shame. Because that's what we see in the first story. When Adam and Eve are, are living in this relationship with God, and they decide in this moment to not just doubt God's goodness, but then choose or rebel away from his word to try and live in his world by themselves... It says in Genesis 3.8 that after they did that, they felt shame. They tried to cover up that shame. And then as they heard the sound of the Lord God when he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid among the tree of the garden. And God called out to them, where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And I think this speaks to one of the very reasons why we resist making room for others, making room for Christ's people in our lives, and it's fear and shame. We're afraid that we're going to be exposed. We're afraid that someone is going to find something out about our lives and know who we really are and maybe reject us. It reminds me of when I was in high school and which was a while ago, and I was on the swim team, and I was a junior now, and I'd finally started to get a good group of friends, like a bunch of guys and girls that, that knew me and liked me for me, that weren't trying to change me, that I felt like I could kind of be myself with. So I decided that it would be really fun to invite all of them to our swim meet, because we started to do better as a swim team. We, could, we were thinking we were going to win this dual meet, and it was like December. I can picture the day, and I'm like, oh, you guys got to come, and about a half a dozen of my friends did, and they came, they sat in the bleachers, and I'm like, yes, this is great, except during warm-ups, I started thinking, oh my gosh, all my friends are here, and I'm in the pool. All my warm-up stuff is across the pool, and now I have to walk in front of them in a silicone swim cap and a piece of lycra that's about this big. Never mind. So you get the picture. Maybe too much of a picture. That's what I think some of us feel like a small group experience or real, true, honest relationship with others is going to be. Is they're going to see way too much of what I don't want them to see. There will... I, I pray to God that there will never be a small group experience where... You walk in, and there's a group of chairs in a circle, which you'd probably expect, and after people say hello and maybe grab a snack, that everyone sits down, and then they say, oh, well, I'd like to welcome Bill here. He's the new guy, and they bring a swivel chair and put it right in the middle of the circle, and then they start to go, well, let's hear about your past, Bill. Let's hear about how many Bible verses you know, and like, could you tell us your deepest, darkest secrets? Like, no, that will never happen. I hope it will never happen. That isn't what God calls us to. But he does call us to be ourselves because there is something beautiful about being able to confess. James says it. 
confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. We do go to God for confession, for forgiveness, but we go to others for healing. And, and this is something that God conquers over and over and over. The Lord never, ever, ever shames. Not once. He does say that his guilt might lead us to repentance, but God never shames us. And over 360 times does Jesus or God say, do not fear or do not be afraid. This is probably one of the biggest things, but it's also one of the largest things that God actually conquers. The second reason that I would say that we resist it is hurt and hate. And I know hate's a strong word, but I don't know what else you'd call the next story in the Bible where the first man and the first woman have a firstborn son, and his name is Cain, and he brings an offering before the Lord that that the Lord does not accept, and his little brother brings his first and best, and the Lord does accept it. It says he looked upon that offering with favor and looked upon that son with favor. Because the son was under, I think the son was understanding something about what it means to come to God, to come before God when you bring your first and your best. Now, and Cain was very angry. There was hate in him. And the Lord comes to him and says, why are you angry? Why are your eyes down? Not once is God angry with Cain. Not once does God reject Cain. He just didn't look upon his offering with favor. So God was never distant, but Cain wasn't experiencing that. And God was giving him a chance to see the feelings that he was having and overcome them. And instead, he is overcome by them and he kills his brother. And even in that, God comes to him. Anybody know the question that God asks Cain? Where is your brother? Anybody know what Cain's response is? A little louder. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, keeper is an interesting word in the scripture. It means to guard or keep or protect. It's, the, it's one of the commands that we're given, that the man and the woman are given in the garden, to guard it and then to cultivate it, to bring out the potential that is there and to protect it. And he says, am I my brother's protector? And because we have this command earlier to guard and to cultivate, the answer is yes, you are. Some of you have been really hurt or betrayed by other people. In fact, maybe even Christ people. You've experienced a kind of death in a relationship that, that may not be actual murder, but feels that way. So the, even the thought of being honest, open, and vulnerable with others scares you to no end. In fact, the last thing that you want to do is be honest, open, and vulnerable. You want to never show weakness. You want to use masks or sarcasm or whatever other tactic to keep people at an arm's length from knowing the real you. But then you don't experience all the good things that relationships have to offer. 
the good and glorious ways that God intended us to be in relationship with people. You think Jesus didn't feel let down by his disciples? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Over and over and over, Jesus is a little let down by them, but continues to invest in them, continues to make room for them. He knows that in order to be God's people, you've got to have people. And so to Cain, he says, be careful. Notice your feelings and overcome them. And he doesn't. He's not able to do it. The next time that someone asks about their brother, because Cain was the first one to ask about their brother, the next time in the scriptures that someone asks about a brother is a long, long, long time. So super Bible bonus points for anyone who knows the next time that someone asks about a brother. Joseph. Well done, Joseph. Joseph, it's in Genesis 37. Genesis 37 is an interesting one because Abraham is the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, and Jacob wrestles with, actually, someone in the scriptures that's just called a man, and wants him to be blessed, and his name is changed to Israel. And so Israel has 12 sons, and he likes Jacob the most. I always thought this was just about family rivalry. But when you put a coat on a son, and you designate him, and I would say, actually, even on a daughter, but when you put this special coat on someone, you're saying, this is my firstborn child. Which I, again, always thought was favoritism until I really understood this. And, and at first, Joseph doesn't get what it means to be the firstborn. He goes and he makes a bad report about his brothers who are watching the sheep, and they hate him for it. In fact, the word hate is used several times in the passage. But in Genesis 37, 11, it says, His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His father kept thinking about this. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph... As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. And he says, very well. Actually, he says, here I am, God, or here I am, Father. I will do whatever it is you need me to do. He says, go and see if all is well with your brothers. Go to see to their wellness, their peace, and their wholeness. Go to see that all is well with your brothers and then bring back word. And so he goes. And Joseph arrives in Shechem, and a man, just unnamed, never heard from again, a man is wandering around in the fields, and he asks Joseph, what are you looking for? Now, if he was looking for his brothers, how might he have said that question? Who are you looking for? And no one else is around. There's no Twitter, there's no Instagram, there's no Facebook, there's there's no way that anyone else will know what Joseph's answer is. He could have said any answer, and the only person who would have known is the man, which I tend to reflect goes back to Israel wrestling with a man, and it's a heavenly representative that is testing in a, in a positive way, testing what is in Joseph's heart. What are you looking for? And Joseph says, 
I'm looking for my brothers. See, to be, to be the firstborn is not about privilege. To be the firstborn is not about getting a double inheritance, which is also something in the scriptures. The reason that the firstborn gets the double inheritance is so they look after the family. Not just the parents, but the aunts, the uncles, and the siblings that can't take care of themselves. To be the firstborn is to see to the shalom or the peace or the wholeness of the brothers and sisters. This is the first time the question is asked in a long, long time. And it's what it means to be a brother's keeper. And it's exactly what Jesus did over and over, over in the scriptures, but specifically Luke 9. It says in Luke 9 that when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all they had done. He'd sent them out on some mission, and he took them and he withdrew. They went on a little retreat by Bethsaida to hear about and to reflect on and to learn from what they experienced. But when the crowds learned about it, they followed him, and instead of sending them away, Jesus welcomes them. He made room for Christ's people because he knows that all people are Christ's people. And so even the crowds need to be made room for. And he not only welcomes them, he teaches them about the kingdom of God. And then he heals those who need healing. And then late in the afternoon when the twelve came and said, send them away so they can go get food and they can find a place to sleep because it's remote, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Oh, but we only have five loaves and two fish unless we go buy food for all these people. And I think this speaks to, number one, what it means to be Christ's people, to welcome them, to teach them, to heal them, and to feed them. But also, one of the last reasons that we resist making room for people is we're too busy or we're too burdened. There's not enough food. There's not enough time. I just, there's, there's, God, Jesus, you've been, we've been working all day. Let's just send these people away. We say, oh, I'll make room for people, you know, especially those people when things settle down, except things never settle down. There's always something, especially in our super overstimulated world, there's always more information, there's more entertainment, there's even more education that we could have, and things never settle down. In fact, if we really blindly jump into this. We just keep hopping from activity to activity like ping pong balls in a wind tunnel. And then we wonder why we're never like at rest. If you missed that on the recording, I made a bunch of frantic arm movements. No, we're refreshed by Christ's people when we invite Christ's spirit. And that's how Jesus made room in his time and culture, which I think relates. He sees the crowds and he welcomes them. He doesn't welcome them all the time, but he does welcome them at the right times. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. He heals them and he feeds them. And he tells his followers to do the same thing. In the next couple of weeks, we'll look at the commands that Jesus gave to his disciples after this story. But this is what Christ's people do. They see to the shalom or the peace or the wholeness of their brothers and sisters. This is why we make room for Christ's people because this is what it means to be a brother's keeper. 
And when we do it by Christ's power, we find out that we always have enough energy. Because this is what it means to be his people. This is why I think the Apostle Paul, who was a church planter and apostle, and has a team of people with him, because as uh, one of the leaders in the Covenant Church says, it takes teamwork to make the dream work. And so he's got these people that are with him. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, with the help of God, we desired and dared to not only tell you, actually it says we dared. With the help of God, we dared to tell you the gospel in the grace of, or in the face of strong opposition. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. This is a group of people who understand that to love God means we invest in others. I mean, his description continues in 1 Thessalonians 2. We won't go through it, but I encourage you to read it more. We were gentle like little children. And we were comforting and caring like a mother to a newborn baby. And we were encouraging and comforting and urging like a good and patient father and how they would lead their children. This is how we are to make room. Actually, just in normal, natural ways. Much like we talked about last week, and making room for Christ means attention and intention. It doesn't necessarily mean a whole bunch of activities. We all need to eat, right? Right? You, you need to eat, yes? So if you invite someone to your meal and just add a little more in, It's way easier to cook for more than it is to cook for less anyway. You made room. And people find conversation and life around food. It's an easy example. We actually have a bunch of summer connection opportunities in your worship folder that as the band comes up, I would encourage you to look at and to jump into. They're one-time opportunities. They're not committing your life away. There's not going to be any super vulnerable or awkward sharing. No one will be wearing a Speedo spandex swimsuit. Um, and it, if they do, it'll be a baby, you know, at one of those fun in the sun times. Otherwise, you know, I've already promised the church and some other leaders I will not wear spandex, you know, at a public event as much as I... Never mind. Because we can be ourselves with people who love what we love. This is why Christ says make room for them. Because when we experience the love of God through other people, we can experience the love of God. When we experience someone offering us forgiveness, it's easier for us to experience what it might be like to be forgiven by God. This is why Jesus Christ trains and calls people to himself to continue to live out the good news because sometimes people are never going to read the good news. They're only going to read us. So what would it look like in your life to respond to that? This is why we have at Restoration one of our values as accepting community. It doesn't just mean as a verb we accept Like, we're an accepting community as an adjective. It means, as a verb, we accept community. We see other people and the need for them in our lives, and we welcome that. 
We welcome them like God welcomes us. When I was asking at our second-to-last disciple group experience, uh, the group of people that had walked from last September through last week, I'd ask them, what is something you learned about yourself or about God? And over and over and over, people said, I can't believe how much God spoke to me through everyone else in the group. Whether it was in our small group or in our large group, I experienced God in ways that I'd never experienced God before. I learned from these other people, and it was amazing. When I was talking to Kara, our group's coordinator, uh, the last couple months about what she and her small groups and her small group leaders have learned, um, essentially they said, when you make room for Christ's people, you experience being seen and known. Don't we all want to be seen and known? And being accepted, just as you are. And having a group of people to pray for you when life gets hard. And a place to ask questions without feeling judged. And a place to process with people. A place to find out that I'm not the only one going through this. And a place to receive help in times of need. This is why we make room. So regardless of your list, will you give it to the Holy Spirit? And we just ask, what is holding me back? Because none of us are whole, independent, self-sufficient, super-capable, all-powerful all-stars. So we should probably stop acting like it. Let's just say that we need each other. We're not perfect. And we don't have to be. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that... In your story over and over and over, when humans couldn't get it, couldn't figure it out, couldn't reach you on our own, you reached out to us. And when we rebelled against you, you continued to reach out to us. And when we turned our backs towards you, you continued to reach out to us. And when we made two steps forward and seven steps back, you continued to reach out to us. And when we still couldn't figure it out, God, you sent your son, fully human as fully God, to live a perfect life of what it means to be a dependent human. God, that as a human, you showed us what it meant to be truly human and you lived a life in communication with you, Heavenly Father, in dependence on you and with the Spirit empowering you. But as fully God, you lived the perfect life and you died the sacrificial death to make a way for us, God, that is the good news, that is why we're here And it's what we have to offer. It's the only thing that we have to offer because you offer it to us. So I pray that you would speak to us about the relationships in our lives that are truly honest, that are are truly accepting, that are joyful and forgiving. I pray, God, that you would move in our hearts to make room for more people and more people like that that can be honest that can be open that can be forgiving that can be trusting that can be strong God that you would just create in our church this 
this picture and this vision of building a people into a lighthouse, a beacon of hope in a broken world because the world is still full of cynics and skeptics who are never going to open a Bible, who need to see it written in our lives. I pray that you would move in that way.